Well, I want to take you uh, back to the year 1996, which for some of you is going to be very hard for you to remember. It was 15 years ago, and back then, Helen and I uh, moved to Birmingham in order to plant this church. And one of the initial priorities we had back then was to find somewhere to live. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this when you've been house hunting, but we kind of drew up a wish list of all the things we'd want to have in our dream house. And then we ranked them in order of importance, recognizing that some of the things, kind of swimming pool and whatever, were unlikely to happen in our first house. So we came up with our top priorities. As far as I recall, our top three priorities, number one, location. Number two, price, the cheaper the better. Number three, decor. We were only going to be renting. We just wanted something that was going to be clean and plain. Now, we actually managed to find somewhere pretty quickly that ticked all of those boxes. And we're just about to sign on the dotted line in the letting agency when Helen, my wife, asked me how wise it was to go for a house without double glazing and with no heating whatsoever other than a very small gas fire in the lounge. Now, I assured her it would be absolutely fine. And it was, at least for the first two months. But then winter came. And I think it's fair to say it was the coldest winter either of us had ever experienced in our whole lives. I I do not kid you, it was so cold that our towels froze stiff overnight. And Helen was forced to go to bed in a jumper, coat, socks, gloves, and balaclava. Morning after morning, as I got up early to scrape the ice off the inside of the bedroom window and boil the water in the kettle downstairs for there to be some hot water for a bath, there is one question that kept playing over and over and over and over in my mind. What in the world was I thinking? Why did I ever think that living in a house with no heating and no double glazing was ever going to be a good idea? What was I thinking? Now, I guess we tend to ask that kind of a question quite a lot. I don't think it's just me. In fact, you can probably remember the last time that you asked it. Maybe you were rummaging through your wardrobe and stumbled across some clothes that you used to wear, and you're looking at it thinking, I used to wear this? What was I thinking? Or perhaps you asked the hairdresser to take off a little more than usual. I used to look like that, and then it turned to this. What was I thinking? What was I thinking then? But maybe it was a date that didn't quite work out, and you just ended up going, what was I thinking? Now, of course, all of those are pretty trivial examples. It's a lot more serious when you talk about decisions that have a far deeper impact on your life, whether it be spiritually, emotionally, relationally, sexually, or financially. So wouldn't it be helpful to know, if you were right now sitting where you're sitting and thinking about doing something, and you're about to make a decision that could potentially be one of those, what was I thinking kind of moments, wouldn't it be helpful to know that there's a specific way of thinking that would help us to avoid those kind of moments where we look back in horror and we're going, what were we thinking? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, makes this small statement in his letter to the Philippians that we've been studying over the last few months. And I want us to look at this small statement for a little while, and then we're going to pan right out, and we're going to see the bigger verse and the bigger context in which he makes this statement. This is what he says. Finally, brothers, think about such things. 
Think about such things. He's saying, all right, after everything else that I've written in this letter, there are some particular things that I want you to specifically think about. And if you'll just think about those specific things, it's going to prove to be of massive benefit to you. It is going to help you hugely. I don't know. It might be you've seen something that's kind of shiny and nice, and you're thinking of going out and buying it despite the fact you can't really afford it. Or maybe you're about to lie to your spouse or another family member about something. Or maybe you've met someone, and you're married or they're married, and you're about to engage in a relationship that's just headed in the wrong direction. Or maybe you're about to go into business with someone or do a deal with someone, and it's not just the best idea. Or or perhaps it's your birthday next weekend and you're thinking about going out with some mates and getting really drunk and seeing what would happen if you did. Or maybe you're treating your kids in a certain way that's sowing seeds of insecurity that will lead to a whole load of complications for them later on in life. And in the middle of it all, you can think you're thinking very clearly. You can think you're making right choices But maybe in a year's time, five years' time, ten years' time, you're going to look back and go, what was I thinking? Wouldn't you want some help to know what would be the right way to think? When Paul says he wants us to think about such things, wouldn't you want to know what those things actually are? Well, I hope you do, because funnily enough, we're going to be looking at those things pretty much for the rest of this talk. There are six simple words that Paul uses in Philippians 4 verse 8. And if you want to know what to think to avoid getting in some of those awkward situations where you're looking back, hands held up in horror, what was I thinking? Here's what Paul tells us. Here are the things he encourages us to think about. Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally, brothers, finally, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, this is huge. This is absolutely massive. But I find it bizarre that We don't tend to heed this advice a lot of the time. I mean, imagine you were to get the greatest performance car in the world. You would decide that you were going to take a serious run at the Le Mans 24-hour race and dedicate yourself to winning it. What are the chances of you filling the car with the cheapest, lowest quality fuel you could find? Not very high. Or imagine that you were really serious about competing in the Olympic marathon in 2012. Now, I know some of these examples are a bit of a stretch of the imagination. Imagine that was you. And you found out you had a real shot at winning it for Team GB. This became the all-consuming goal of your life. How likely is it that you would then go go on an all-McDonald's diet between now and the Games? Not very likely. It's like we're really aware, totally aware, that the fuel that goes into the things that matter most to us ultimately determines their performance and their well-being. We're very aware of that. Which is why it is so incredibly ironic that in the most important area of all, we tend to disregard this one basic piece of wisdom. You see, what you feed, everything else you own or possess, is nothing compared to the importance of what you feed 
your mind. Now, the reason that Paul here is urging us to be so, so careful about what we fill our minds with is because our mind will think most about what it is most exposed to. It's the basic law of exposure. What enters your mind repeatedly occupies your mind and eventually shapes your mind and ultimately expresses itself in what you do and who you become. There's one of the Proverbs in the Old Testament that says, as a man thinks in his heart or in his mind, so he is. But for some reason, this is a huge blind spot to many of us. I mean, no one's surprised by the law of gravity. No one says, well, I I dropped an egg on the concrete and it shattered. I mean, what were the chances of that? But amazingly, most people seem completely and utterly astonished that what their mind is constantly exposed to eventually comes out in how they feel and what they do. So children nowadays are exposed to hundreds, thousands even, of acts of violence and murder on television, and even more graphic violence in films. They they see it the whole time in video games. And then we act as if it is a huge surprise when a fight breaks out, or there's a spot of violence, or there's another shooting. Similarly, we're flooded with sexual images from screens and from billboards and from magazine covers. Sexually explicit messages and images are sent not just to adults who go looking for them, but to children who sit in front of a computer screen and don't even know what it is they're getting into. And they get bombarded with this stuff the whole time. And then we profess to be slightly surprised when promiscuity goes up. And sexual addictions become rampant, and marital infidelity is on the rise, and marital stability is crumbling fast. This is the basic law of exposure, and it is just inevitable. Because what you repeatedly expose your mind to will shape and influence and mold your thoughts, which in turn will affect your behavior. And none of us is immune to this. None of us is immune to this. It it astounds me how often people think or live as if they can get away with violating this simple law of exposure. People will say things to me like, well, I can read this material, or I can watch those images, or I can listen to those twisted or warped words, but they really don't affect me. I mean, I'm not really paying attention. They just kind of wash over me. It just goes in one ear and out the other. That is absolute nonsense. It's a lie. It's a trap. Let me be as clear on this as I know how. The events you attend, the materials that you read or don't read, the music that you listen to, the images that you watch, the conversations that you hold, the daydreams, the fantasies that you entertain in your mind, these are shaping your mind and eventually your character and ultimately your destiny. That's what's at stake here. I mean, just take a look, consider the kinds of minds that this world, this culture, this society that we live in is currently producing. Anxious minds, depressed minds, angry, violent minds, minds that are just obsessed with sexual material, minds that are consumed by jealousy 
or bitterness, or fear, or selfishness, or pride, or materialism. Society is in a real mess right now. But here's the good news. Because it is not all bleak. It is not all hopeless. The good news about this basic law of exposure is you can actually use it for good. You can put this truth, this principle, this law to work for you. You you can get on the solution side of this whole deal. If you or I really want to become a certain kind of person, a truthful, noble, right, pure, admirable kind of person, it really is possible for us to grow in that way. But we have to start by thinking different thoughts. And that's why Paul writes these remarkable words that even after 2,000 years still have phenomenal power. Finally, brothers, finally, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Can you imagine what this world would be like if it were filled with people whose minds were full of such things? Imagine for just a moment what it would be like if the newspapers and the magazines we read and the television shows that we watched and the films that we viewed and the conversations that we held and the daydreams that we entertained were filled with what's true and noble and right and pure and admirable. Can you imagine that? Now look, it really is possible for your mind to begin to be shaped or molded or influenced this way. But it won't happen automatically. It requires us to very intentionally think about some specific things. So, very quickly, I want to work through this list that Paul gives us here in this verse, and I want to see what this looks like in practice, what it would mean for you and I to go away and apply this in day-to-day life. First thing that Paul tells us to think about is this. Whatever is true. Whatever is true. Now, that's really important, because if someone close to you was building their life on a whole load of false assumptions, wouldn't you want to stop them? Wouldn't you want to kind of grab them and say, hey, I know now why you're acting the way that you're acting. It's because you're thinking about things that are false. And because you're thinking about things that are false, things that aren't true, your actions are just wrong. See, if you're thinking about things that aren't true, you are going to act in a certain way. And it's going to be out of sync with how life should be lived. And Paul says, so that is why... I want to try and catch you before you start doing that. Please, start thinking about things that are true. Let me give you a couple of examples. Most of the magazine covers aimed at young teenage girls, don't tend to have those in my house, but I have seen them out and about. Most of the magazine covers aimed at young teenage girls, they feature models that are paid outrageous sums of money to to make themselves unnaturally thin. And these models get interviewed and quoted as if they were the experts on what it means to be desirable and what makes life worth living. Now, if a young girl started to go through life based on that wrong assumption, you could only imagine where that would lead. Her mind's going to be constantly filled with thoughts, I'm not thin enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not desirable enough, 
I'll never be wanted enough. I'll never be loved enough. And their feelings of self-esteem and self-worth will increasingly plummet. Imagine this. There's another lie that says, well, I don't really believe that my actions have consequences. And even if they do, then I think I can live with them. I can deal with them. I can handle them. Now, if someone really believed that, if they thought they could live however they wanted and still get where they wanted to go, think about what a mess their life would end up being. See, that's why Paul says here, whatever is true, I want you to think about such things. And then he moves on to the second thing. He says, I want you also to think about whatever is noble. Now, I suggest that noble isn't a word that we'd regularly use in day-to-day conversation. In fact, let's put this to the test. Hands up if you have used the word noble in the last seven days. Anyone here? <laughs> Two people, who, three people whose vocabulary is, is very broad. Now, I guess if I say the word noble or nobility, you might now think of these characters, or alternatively, you may think of royalty, kings, queens, princes, princesses, the royal wedding, perhaps, But actually, the word basically means someone or something that is worthy of respect. Now, Paul here could either be encouraging us to think thoughts that are worthy of respect and not thoughts that are disrespectful, or he could alternatively be calling us to think and be inspired by people who are worthy of respect of respect, and not to be constantly thinking about and obsessing and finding role models in people who aren't worthy of our respect. So, for example, if you were to take racism, you don't just wake up one morning and find that suddenly, from nowhere, you are a racist. It starts by, over a period of time, entertaining certain thoughts. He's not worth anything because of where he was born or because of the color of his skin, or because of the way he speaks. It can happen by entertaining certain thoughts over a period of time, or alternatively, by looking up to and admiring someone who themselves judges people according to their race. It could be a parent, could be a friend, could be a particular writer or celebrity. And over time, those thoughts and attitudes become more and more entrenched in your thinking. And Paul would say, stop it. Nip it in the bud. Think noble thoughts. Be respectful with your thoughts. It's not noble. It's not respectful to judge people on the basis of the color of their skin. So don't think that way. And you're certainly not going to think noble thoughts if you're idolizing or thinking about or looking up to or modeling your life on the behavior of people who are racist. Either of those interpretations could be what Paul's getting at here, but he doesn't stop to elaborate, he just keeps going. He says, the third thing that you need to think about is whatever is right. Another way of saying it is whatever is just. Paul had this inclination, this hunch that people weren't thinking fairly. They were thinking, well, this is what I deserve, but I don't really care what anyone else deserves. Or they were defining what was right or just or fair from a purely human perspective. But Paul's wanting us to shift our perspective, our focus away from ourselves and start to consider what's right and just from the perspective, the point of view of God. 
Think about whatever is right. And fourthly, it calls us to also think about whatever is pure. Now again, this, is one, this one is a tough one for us, particularly for those of us who are men, because I guess a lot of the time our thoughts aren't as pure as really they should be or could be. But the interesting thing about being pure in thought is it's actually a great value. I mean, everyone likes things that are pure. It's great, isn't it, being able to turn on our tap and get pure water. Or maybe you like eating food that's organic, it's not polluted with chemicals or preservatives. Or maybe you like diamonds because of their sparkle and their transparency. We, we love things that are pure. Not imagine if I asked you whether you'd want your spouse to have pure thoughts. You'd say yes without any hesitation whatsoever. It'd be the same if I asked whether you wanted your kids to have pure thoughts, or people who work for you, or your boss, or your friends. But when it comes to us, well, I don't know. I mean, it's hard. Which means this is something we will need to battle for. For guys, one of the biggest issues is pornography. It's rabid. It's rampant. And it is so incredibly destructive. I see people the whole time weighed down with shame and guilt over impure thoughts. And it's all in the mind. It's a battle we, we need to fight and we need to win to fill our minds with thoughts which are pure. Paul says, I want you to think about whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure. Then he moves on to a word that's a little unusual. Fifthly, he says, I want you to think about whatever is lovely. Now, I could probably count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I've used this word lovely over the last 40 years, and they probably all occurred in the previous site when I did this very same talk. As men, we don't tend to use this word lovely very much. Women, you, you might use it a little more frequently, but it's a hard word for us to get a grasp of. It's certainly not used anywhere else in the New Testament, only here in Philippians 4 verse 8. So I've done a little bit of rummaging, digging around over the last week, and I found out that unlike all the other adjectives that Paul uses here in this verse, it, the word lovely carries a visual dimension to it. It includes things that are beautiful to look at, things that give us pleasure, things that are lovable. It might be a piece of music, might be a work of art, might be a person, might be a scenic view. It's something that causes us to think positive thoughts or generous thoughts or thoughts of praise. I guess perhaps the opposite of this is to think critical or cynical thoughts. It's, it's to not think the best, it's to dwell on the worst. And Paul says he wants us to fill our minds with thoughts which are lovely, that dwell on what's positive and what's lovable. Then he goes on to the last one. He says, I want to think about whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, and sixthly, whatever is admirable. Again, this is where it gets really hard. Because we know what it means to be admirable. It means anything or anyone that you would look up to. 
anything or anyone you would admire, anything or anyone that you'd set up on a pedestal and say, now, that is what we should be living like or living for. But I would imagine that your thoughts or my thoughts have ever been held up as a standard to anyone to say, man, did, did you hear about the thoughts that he had? Or did you hear about those thoughts that she had? I mean, they're just remarkable. They're incredible. Everyone should, should think like them. That's the standard that Paul says we're to aim at. And then Paul makes this kind of umbrella statement. He says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, I know you can read through this list. True, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. And I guess most of us would agree in principle that these are good things to aim at, but at the same time, inwardly, personally, feel that it's all pretty unattainable. But I think that Paul was purposefully setting the bar way up there so that we would strive for excellence in this whole area. Because, I mean, if you aim for nothing in your life, you're going to achieve nothing. And in your mind, if you never think about what you're actually thinking about, you know what you're going to think about? Well, who knows? Paul's saying, if you want something to aim for, if you want a goal why don't you think about these things that are excellent and praiseworthy? And it's not a hopeless course. It really is possible for you to begin to live like this, begin to put this into action in your mind. But as we've already seen, it won't happen automatically. It won't happen just as a result of sitting in the chair you're in now and letting these words wash over you. You're not going to just drift into this. So in the moments that remain in this talk, I want to just very quickly discuss with you a few things that I think you would do well to do, a few steps that I believe you'll need to take if you want to have a transformed mind, if you want to apply all of this and start moving towards it. Here's the first one. First step is this. You need to begin by monitoring your mind. You need to begin by just becoming aware of what kind of thoughts habitually run through your mind, because we're thinking all the time. But one of the dangerous things about us is we slip so deeply into certain mental patterns, we're not even aware that they're there anymore. Many years ago, when I was first learning to drive, a friend of mine very generously said that I could drive his car albeit on some kind of army wasteland where there is no other traffic around. And he used to take me on a Sunday afternoon to this stretch of army land just outside Aldershot, and he'd kind of get out of the car and I'd get in and start driving. But the problem was this land had, had tanks driving up and down it over many years. And there were these great tracks and trenches and ruts that if you weren't watching where you were going, you'd end up stuck in one, and then you'd just have to follow it until you could get out of it. And it could be some distance. I think it can be like that in our minds. It's like we get stuck in a rut of thinking, maybe bitter thoughts, or greedy thoughts, or lustful thoughts, or, or thoughts that are full of self-pity, or angry thoughts, or unforgiving thoughts, or jealous or envious thoughts. And we just get stuck in the rut, or going down the track of thinking that way. We don't even question it. It happens almost subconsciously, and we just go down that route every time. I want to challenge you to start doing something today. As you go through the day, why don't you stop at regular intervals and ask yourself, what's running through my mind right now? 
what am I thinking right now? For example, next time you're in a car and you get cut up by someone as you're driving, what kind of thoughts run through your mind? Are they excellent and praiseworthy and noble and lovely and admirable thoughts? Because there's a couple of different directions that we can go. You can think, that person is utter scum and they shouldn't be allowed on the road, and they ought to be taught a lesson, and I hope I'm the one to do it. And you can sound your horn, and you can shake your fist, and you can drive on their bumper for 20 miles. You can do that. Some of you do do that. (laughs) Or you can think thoughts like, maybe the person driving that car is just having a bad day. Or maybe they just didn't see me. Or maybe they're on the way to the hospital and there's some dreadful emergency. But regardless of what their situation is, because I'm not going to stop them and interrogate them and find out what it is, I'm just going to respond in this moment with patience and maturity. I know it might seem hard to believe. You can think like that. You can think like that. But the first step you need to take is to do some diagnostic work and understand what kind of thoughts regularly run through your mind, what ruts, what tracks your mind normally takes. You need to be aware of what's going on inside your head. You need to begin by monitoring your mind. The second thing you need to do is then mix in some good stuff. You need to expose your mind to things that are going to be a positive influence. It could be books or music, or podcasts, or people, or conversations. You you just need to ask the question, is this thing helping me towards thoughts that are excellent, or is it moving me in the other direction? Now, partly, I guess this depends on what you struggle with. For example, some of us, maybe, perhaps, in this room, wrestle with laziness, A lot of people do. It tends to be kind of the unmentioned sin of our day. Now, if you struggle with this, if you struggle with laziness, perhaps the number one activity that you will tend to engage in by default is watching TV. Okay, honesty time, show of hands. How many of you find that prolonged television watching helps transform you to become more energised, proactive, sloth-defying, helps you to become a human dynamo. Who finds that as their experience? Anyone here? One person. You, you must share us what you watch because it's not the same program or programs that I watch. By its nature, television reinforces passivity. If you like, it lets the air out of the tires of your mind. You you don't have to think, you don't have to evaluate, you don't have to reflect, you don't have to decide. And over time, your mental habits will become increasingly weakened and addicted, and you'll find your attention span will get shorter and shorter. You can see it in our society. Attention spans today, compared to people even 50 years ago, are significantly reduced. And if you're finding that you've already switched off several times in this talk, I suggest it's because you watch too much television. Stop watching television, listen longer to the sermons. In fact, in fact, our attention span is so decimated that not only do we have the television set, we've invented the remote control so that We don't have to go for more than a nanosecond being bored. You can just change channels in an instant and something else will come to stimulate our minds. If we get bored with that, press another button. Something else appears as if by magic on our screens. It's like you don't actually have to do 
any thinking. So in most homes, not only is life without TV unthinkable, but life without a remote control is unthinkable. I don't know if you've seen it, but they've just developed a new kind of remote control because people are always losing them. It's kind of buried under the sofa or under a pile of junk or something. So they've invented this new remote control where all you have to do is clap and it starts beeping so you can find it. So you don't have to go another moment without your remote control. And what really concerns me is I know there will be some people in the room right now where the only thing you'll take away from this message is I've got to get one of those remotes. (laughs) Paul says, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, some of you were thinking that, weren't you? Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I'll tell you something. Television doesn't tend to produce those kinds of thoughts very often. So I want to give you a challenge. I want to challenge you to go a week without watching any television at all. Maybe you want to wait a week before you do that until Britain's Got Talent has finished, but would you have the courage to say, I'm going to unplug the television for seven days, or or maybe the PlayStation, or whatever else is the equivalent of TV for you. I'm going to unplug it, no talk shows, no soap opera, No sitcoms, no sport, no overheated music videos, none of those games I'm addicted to. I'm going to go one week cold turkey. And I'm not going to record these programs either. I'm not going to go back and watch them because I can see the way your mind was going. I'm not going to go and watch them on iPlayer and some kind of huge TV binge the week after. I'm not going to do that. Now, one of the things that will happen, one of the things that will happen when you do that is you'll create space for your mind to have other experiences. Maybe it'll be to read a book. Maybe you've never read a book that stretched your mind and caused you to grow in your knowledge of God. Maybe you've read kind of other books, but not ones that improve your relationship with God. Maybe you haven't read a book like that in a long time. You might have a whole pile of books at home that you've had good intentions and bought but never read. Maybe a couple of weeks ago we had Terry Virgo here and maybe some of you bought one of his books under duress but haven't touched it since. Maybe there are books that you know you've got that you could read that would be beneficial. Maybe you're thinking, I haven't a clue what book to read. So just to help you out, one recommendation. Um, Have you seen this book, Incomparable by Andrew Wilson? Anyone seen this? Anyone got this? Anyone recommend this? All those hands still stayed up. Okay, great book. It currently retails at £8.07 on Amazon, uh, down from £8.99, so a real bargain there. Uh, This book, uh, just lots and lots of chapters, bite-sized chapters, looking at the character and being of God. And and you'll find as you read this, just kind of day after day, just a different facet of what God's like. It will stimulate your worship towards him. It will help your prayer life. It will help you grow more like him. Incomparable by Andrew Wilson. Maybe you need to read a book. Maybe you just need to spend some time talking with some people. If you unplug the TV or the PlayStation for a week, it will free you up to have certain conversations with people in your family or some of your friends, maybe certain friends you you could do with spending some time with. But more than anything else, I want to encourage you to do this. I want to encourage you to make a commitment to say, I will increasingly expose my mind to God's Word. Because, you know, God has given us the Bible for the transformation, for the renewing 
of our minds. He's given us his word, the Bible, at least in part, so that we can think about and be exposed to what's true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. A part of this, it involves a corporate activity. Some of you have never made the simple commitment to say, well, when the church gathers together to worship and study the Bible, I'm going to make a real priority to be there. Not just fitting it in when it's convenient, I'm going to make a priority to be there. Because the truth is, my mind's going to get bombarded minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, by all kinds of messages and images that aren't true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. And when the church gathers together to be exposed to this book, the Bible, and to worship together and to glorify God, my mind needs to be there because it's got so many other influences trying to pull it down another road. So I'm going to move from being a casual attender to someone who sees the real importance of making this a priority. That's the corporate part of exposing our minds to Scripture. There's also a personal part to this. The Bible talks a lot about the whole idea of meditating on Scripture. In the Psalms, for example, it often speaks of someone who follows God, who loves God, meditating on Scripture day and night. It's like it just becomes a habitual thing. Now, this word meditate, maybe you think it sounds a little weird, maybe a little scary to you. So, Let me try and make it as simple as I know how. Another bit of audience participation is required at this point. How many of you know how to worry? Maybe in the last few weeks you found yourself worrying about something. Exams, for example. Who here knows how to worry? Quite a few of us. Some are looking very laid back and calm. Uh, Most of us, though, know how to worry. The reason I ask the question is because if you know how to worry you know how to meditate. It's like you just take one thought and you dwell on it and linger on it and absorb it until it becomes a part of you. Meditating on God's Word is just kind of a positive form of worry. It's taking a passage, it's taking a verse and dwelling on it and lingering on it and absorbing it until it becomes a part of you. And in the process, one of the things that you can do that's really helpful is to actually memorize Scripture. Now, again, this is actually a whole lot easier than you think. You see, you memorize stuff all the time. You memorize lyrics to songs. You memorize phone numbers and pin numbers and people's names. You memorize birthdays. And when you memorize stuff, it sits in your brain. And it just kind of lays there until you need it. And then you kind of pull it up and use it. And in the same way, I want to encourage you to start memorizing verses from the Bible. In fact, why not start with Philippians 4, verse 8, the verse we've been looking at this morning. I'll tell you, it will take you less than five minutes to remember, to memorize that verse. Memorize it. Let it just rest there in your mind. Let it become like a filter to your thoughts, so that during the day, when you're thinking about what to think about, that's what comes to mind. Now, I guess... We'll all have different experiences with this. Some of you are here and you have a great memory. You actually like to memorize stuff. You, you, you relish the idea of exams and tests because you've memorized everything. It just comes spewing out and it's so easy. In fact, how many of you say you like that? You know the truth is, I have got a great memory. Anyone like that? 
No, oh, one person, two people, a few people just thinking about it. Yes, I remember I am like that. How many of you say, well, if I'm going to be really honest about it, memorizing, just remembering stuff, it's a struggle for me. Who would say that? And for those who haven't raised your hands, maybe forgotten what the question was. <laughs> now, look, the whole point of memorizing Scripture isn't how many verses you memorize. That's not the point. That's not the deal. God doesn't have this kind of flip chart up in heaven where he's got your name and puts God's gold stars next to it for every verse that you manage to remember. That's not what happens. The point is what happens to your mind as it's meditating and reflecting on Scripture. So it doesn't really matter how many verses you memorize. It, it's not a quantity issue. It's like in the act of saying and rehearsing and reflecting on and absorbing Scripture your mind changes. And that thought from God's Word becomes a part of your mind, a part of your thinking. It becomes like a filter in your mind. It becomes something that's excellent and praiseworthy that is now lodged in you and becomes a part of you. So you begin to live on the basis of that Word. That's why meditating, even memorizing Scripture, is so central and so helpful. They're not things that we do to earn brownie points with God or to show how very spiritual we are. They, they simply exist for our benefit, to help us to transform our minds so that as we walk through the day, we, we think different kinds of thoughts and therefore begin to live different kinds of lives. And you can do that. You can do that. In fact, not only can you do that, you need to do that. If you want to avoid those what was I thinking kind of moments. You need to monitor your mind. You need to begin mixing in some good stuff. You need to meditate on Scripture, even memorize Scripture. And so, as you draw to close, I think it'd be absolutely amazing if everyone in this room were to go to God and were to say, God, most of all, what I want is a new mind. Because I'm fed up. I'm tired of the old one. I'm tired of how it leads me down these paths, these tracks that lead to destruction and foolishness and rubbish decisions and death. And in a world where messages are so often just twisted and warped or trivial or foolish or self-absorbed or downright evil, I love to have the kind of mind that's filled with true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, praiseworthy, and excellent thoughts. you imagine what it would be like if we had a whole room full of people who thought that way and lived that way?